0: Hey guys, you're listening to Unlimited Hangout. I'm your host, Whitney Webb. It's been roughly a week since the second largest bank failure in U.S. history and the collapse of SVB, or the Silicon Valley Bank, has spurred the collapse of Signature Bank and Silvergate Bank, as well as the downgrading of the outlook for the entire U.S. banking sector. Now it seems the crisis is spreading to Europe, with Credit Suisse shares tumbling earlier this week, sparking concerns that another major financial crisis is set to explode in relatively short order. How did we get here, and what can we expect? Today, we will be exploring the role of the Federal Reserve and the broader situation with cryptocurrencies that played a role in SVB's demise. We'll also be taking a look at the aspects of this case that suggest there's something much bigger at play, such as the role of Palantir co-founder and venture capitalist Peter Thiel in stoking the SVB collapse, and some of the connections shared by the Already collapsed and currently most troubled banks and the tie-ins to major U.S. government overtures regarding cryptocurrency regulation. Joining me today to unpack this complete mess are Marty Bent and Mike Krieger. Marty is the founder of TFTC.io, a media company focused on Bitcoin beauty and freedom in the digital age. He is also a partner at Ten Thirty One a leading investment platform focused exclusively on investing in the Bitcoin ecosystem, and he also hosts the Tales from the Crypt or the TFTC podcast. Mike formerly worked on Wall Street as an oil and gas general commodities analysis and equity research and later on a trading desk. He left in disgust over the state of the industry and started the website Liberty Blitzkrieg. Though he doesn't blog as much anymore, Mike still shares his insights regularly on social media. So great to have you guys back on. How are you doing? Doing great. Thanks for having me
1: doing well it's been a crazy week.
0: Yeah, totally. So the last time you both were here was on episode 43 where we covered the collapse of FTX and all the resulting scandals from that and since we last spoke there's been a lot going on in the crypto space and most much of it hasn't been very positive for crypto at all and some of it of course is uh, linked one way to another uh, from the fall to the fallout uh, resulting from FTX. So um, some of these more recent events I'm referring to here are ultimately part of the story of Silicon um, Valley Bank's collapse, but preceded that collapse. So I'm talking specifically about some events that caused trouble for the USDC stablecoin, the company that issues that stablecoin, which is Circle, uh, as well as some issues at Silvergate Bank. So let's start there.
1: I mean, we could start with Silvergate Bank, because uh, I've had some personal experience i mean I, I have i work at it
0: sure well definitely before svb collapsed right there was some uh stuff going on with silvergate that was relatively you know uh, noteworthy and seems like it definitely ties in to the events that resulted in svb's collapse so why don't we just start with them then
1: yeah the silvergate uh so in the quote-unquote crypto sphere, i focus mainly on bitcoin um uh, but the overall crypto sphere. Was banking a lot of companies were banking with Silvergate. Silvergate was one of the first banks to stick their neck out and say, Hey, we'll, uh, we'll spin up some bank accounts for any companies that are dealing with cryptocurrencies. So a lot of companies in the industry flooded Silvergate and put a lot of deposits there. One of those companies was FTX, which we discussed in the previous episode.
2: Mm-hmm. When
1: FTX collapsed, uh, that obviously uh, exposed like a big hole in Silvergate's uh, company, uh, that, that they had this counterparty FTX that people thought had billions of dollars, but it turned out that that money didn't really exist. At the end of the day, they squandered it, um, and so that that set off a contagion event for Silvergate, particularly where a lot of companies in the space started pulling out their deposits and moving it to other banks like Silicon Valley Bank and Signature, which we'll talk about later. Uh, but throughout the summer silvergate ha- had a run on the bank and actually to give silvergate some credit they they had their bank set up where they had a lot of liquid reserves so they were able to actually weather uh, a bank run of eight billion dollars of all these cryptocurrency companies pulling their deposits out of silvergate and sending it to other banks um but then eventually the flood became too much about a month ago three three to four weeks ago uh and uh, Silvergate had to shut down. Uh, it was a combination of depositors pulling their their money out, and then you had short sellers like Mark Cohodes, and then you had a politician like Elizabeth Warren really beating the drum on social media uh, that, that Silvergate was insolvent and that people should pull their money out. So essentially everybody pulled their money out. But yeah. the, the interesting thing with Silvergate is they were able to uh, – process all the withdrawals from their bank, even after they were officially shut down by the FDIC. So they were actually a very well capitalized bank.
0: Yeah, better than a lot of, uh, you know, major other banks that aren't involved in crypto, it seems. Yeah.
2: Let me just jump in here, too, and add a little bit of additional information. So one my understanding is actually, as Marty was saying, Silvergate, Was it's you know kind of like hung on impressively for for a while, even even though it was um, connected with Alameda and FTX, and obviously the politicians came after it. There's a few other pieces. One is um, that there was investigations. You know, like I think from the DOJ. um, Certainly, there were in you know sort of serious criminal investigations. Then that was leaked. And so that caused more problems as well. But it seems to, from my understanding, it seems that the final nail in the coffin, interestingly enough, was a prepayment of an FHLB loan, um, which was reasonably recently, I think. They, They actually had, I think, a $4 billion loan from the FHLB. And then they, they suddenly decided to repay that. And in the process of repaying a four billion loan, they had to sell the assets, right? So this is similar to what happened to Silicon Valley Bank. You have all these unrealized losses on their balance sheets with, which every bank has. But there was a realized loss was triggered when they prepaid the FHLB loan. And that was the end of it, you know, once they had to realize the losses and then it just everything accelerated. So that the the weird thing about this, and we can tie this into Signature later because that's a big mystery still for, you know, I've not seen a good explanation for exactly why Signature was effectively nationalized. Um, but Silvergate is weird, too, because it also has one of these sort of nonsensical um, timelines, which is no, but the FHLB is claiming that they did not. um trigger a prepayment and Silvergate's not saying anything about that. So nobody knows why Silvergate felt the need to actually prepay or pay that loan which was the final nail in the coffin. So that's, yeah, that's another a bit kind weird, of weird thing. isn't it? Very weird, very weird. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So I I want to bring up something really quick um, related to this. So, uh, Marty, you mentioned Elizabeth Warren. So um, I think thanks to her and some of this other investigations uh, from the government that were related to the follow up from FTX, because of the FT, uh, FTX having accounts at Silvergate, they were targeting Silvergate. But, you know, as other people, including myself and, and Ed Berger, have reported, Uh, There was this very suspect bank (laughs) that's very small uh, in Washington State called Farmington uh, Farmington State Bank that had recently rebranded as Moonstone Bank. And FTX had a lot of suspect, well, specifically Alameda had a lot of um, suspect activity there. And that hasn't been scrutinized at all, right? So that kind of suggests that there was a particular interest in scrutinizing Silvergate relative to other U.S.-based institutions that were tied up with FTX. And it's it's interesting when you look at what's happened since uh, what we're specifically talking about here now with Silvergate, how, um, you know, with Signature gone and Silvergate gone, and uh, that doesn't really leave very many uh, pro-crypto, quote unquote, banks in the US anymore. Because as I understand it, the only other bank in that sphere until relatively recently was like Metropolitan Bank or something. And they uh, announced that they were going to get into their um work with crypto earlier this year because of regulatory pressure from the sec so
2: yeah yeah so so let me let me put put this out there now and we'll, we'll get into it more later but this is one of the things that i didn't recognize at first but the more i read into it the more it becomes clear why silvergate and signature in particular is so important here for for one thing um when when people sort of read about this in the mainstream you know media or just anywhere really what you keep hearing is like signature and silvergate were crypto banks right they were the main crypto banks and it's true that a lot of the companies would hold their their cash there like let's say coinbase circle i think circle was also at silicon valley bank but um you know a lot of the industry would have their bank accounts there but i actually you know but 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 you know crypto companies bitcoin companies you know there there are banking relationships with large banks right The, the mega banks so it's not like they're not involved i think what separates Silvergate and signature and why they were targeted actually have to do with this the sen network at Silvergate and Signet at Signature. So Sen is the uh, Silvergate exchange network, mm-hmm. and these two things were crucial to the functioning of a like twenty-four-seven fiat to stablecoin market, because mm-hmm. as you know, like if you've ever used a U.S. bank or any bank, if you want to try to do something over the weekend, good luck. You know, how are you going to send a wire? How are you going to send you know dollars from one place to another? using the banking institutions are closed right it's it's outside of ours. but but the crypto ecosystem operates 24/7 and so if mm-hmm. you if you're running stable coins and you know you need that liquidity from usd fiat into the stable coin to, for, for that for that market to function 24/7 you need a 24/7 capacity to to make those things happen and so that's what that's what silvergate was doing with CENT. And, and therefore, um, I think that that is clearly why they were targeted. Um, and, and Signature was also doing a similar thing. And so that this, this to me, it was the main reason, because if you think about it, a stable, a USD stable coin that's able to function all the time um, and, and effectively, if, if it could do it, if it can effectively be sort of seen as a 24-7 USD instrument. That's kind of a CBDC, but, but being run privately. And so if you're going to actually try to roll out a CBDC run by the Fed, you can't have a, a functioning, uh, I guess, competitor, you could say, right, that's, that's not in their control.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really good point, because for those that don't know... Uh, The Federal Reserve is trying to launch its own uh, round-the-clock payment and settlement service, which is called FedNow, right? So maybe they, um, you know, this seems like kind of a convenient way to maybe get rid of some of the competition to pave the way for CBDCs, which seems to be sort of a bigger theme, um, I think, um, out of this whole discussion about how CBDCs, Central Bank Digital Currencies, um tie into to everything but yeah it's definitely very convenient then uh, that these networks have uh you know critical networks of, of crypto infrastructure have essentially been uh decimated right or at least they'll be bought up by some big wall street bank
2: right because think about it if you can if you're already kind of sending usd via stablecoin coin that's le- like considered legit um all the time around the world whenever you want um uh, then what do you need a CBDC for? <laughs> I mean, that's, yeah. sort of the, that's sort of the... Exactly. I think, that's why, I think that's why this was all done. And that's yeah. also why um, they're saying, the FDIC is now saying that whoever buys Signature's assets or the bank itself has to get rid of the crypto part. That's mm-hmm. completely weird and arbitrary, unless that's the whole point.
0: Well, as we'll talk about later, there's some people arguing that the shutdown of Signature Bank itself was arbitrary. So yeah. there's a lot of, you know... <laughs> Uh, weird stuff going on with that bank in particular. So um, it, before we move on to the next thing, uh, anything you'd like to add, Marty, to the, the discussion about SIN and some of these these payment networks?
1: I mean, they were, they were very crucial for the industry. So SIN with SilverGates and then Signatures with Signet. And essentially, I mean, Bitcoin trades 24-7, 365. So obviously people are buying Bitcoin on the weekends if the price is moving or if they simply just want to buy Bitcoin on a whim. And so these exchanges and companies being able to send money between each other over the weekend was, was a crucial uh, function that, that Silvergate and Signature provided the industry. Um, and obviously, yes, stable coins were using it too. But even for Bitcoin exchanges that need to move funds between each other, uh, it was a big value add as well. So this, this being taken out certainly uh, hurt the industry too. To a to a large extent.
0: All right. Well, let's move on to talking about how um, the the SVB collapse may have been influenced by the Federal Reserve and more specifically um, some of the Fed's monetary policy during COVID. So there were apparently some um, not so great bets made by SVB during uh, the you know the COVID nineteen crisis and all of that. And then there's the issue about um, the Fed's recent efforts. Uh, to combat inflation and tightening and all of that. So um, what are your guys' thoughts about um, the Fed, it, it, the role the Federal Reserve played, if uh, if any, in, in what we're seeing or what we've seen over the past couple of weeks?
1: Yeah, I think, I think the Fed's policy over the last three and a half years is the main driver of this systemic banking contagion that seems to be playing out not only here in the United States, but also in Europe. So during COVID, March 2020, When the the global economy shut down, the Fed drove interest rates down to zero and printed trillions of dollars and kept interest rates low and kept printing for about a year and a half. And then uh, essentially what happened is you had all these banks uh, load up their capital reserves with particular instruments. In Silicon Valley Bank's case, they uh, bought a lot of mortgage-backed securities, which were the crux of Uh, the banking crisis of 2008. Mm -hmm. Uh, Essentially, when Silicon Valley Bank bought these mortgage-backed securities, put them on their balance sheet, they uh, did that with the assumption that the the Fed was likely to keep interest rates low uh, for for an extended period of time. Uh, And so essentially what happened is when the Fed started raising rates last year and pulling dollars out of the system, Silicon Valley Bank found itself in a very vulnerable position where they had what's called a duration mismatch. They they had a lot of these MBSs on their book, which are longer dated. And as the Fed began pulling dollars out of the system and Silicon Valley banks, customers um, began uh, withdrawing funds. It really affected that portion of their balance sheet. And so when the Fed raises rates, uh the the price of the underlying bonds or, or debt instruments has an inverse correlation. So the Fed raises rates very fast, very rapidly and pulls dollars out of the system. The the debt instruments, the price of those instruments typically falls as rates go up. And so what we found was Silicon Valley Bank um had these MBSs on their balance sheet and they were losing value over time. And so Uh, It was essentially just a ticking time bomb as the Fed has kept raising rates and kept pulling dollars out of the system. The value of that capital on their balance sheet was decreasing. Uh, And this is happening to every bank, not just uh, Silicon Valley Bank. And it's not just mortgage-backed securities, it's treasuries as well. So a lot of banks, instead of buying mortgage-backed securities, are buying treasuries and find themselves in the same situation. So essentially what happened last week is the, the bomb went off. Uh, the the value of the the reserves in their balance sheet fell to such a point that as people began withdrawing cash from Silicon Valley Bank, um, probably stemming from fears of Silvergate going down and their customers wanting to diversify a bit, they were forced to sell their mortgage-backed securities and realize losses as well. And then that created a cascading event where they were selling these instruments, uh, and just the act of selling was driving the price down even further. And as people were withdrawing money, uh, the value of that part of their balance sheet basically collapsed. And then on top of that, it was really hard to sell. Mortgage-backed securities are a bit more illiquid than something like treasuries. And so um, you had a run on that bank, and that was exacerbated by uh, the, the VC um, industry. In that part of the country, basically going to their portfolio companies, Peter Thiel, uh, most notably uh, from Founders Fund, emailing uh, the portfolio companies and urging them to take their money out of uh, Silicon Valley Bank last week. And that word got out and created a, a massive run on the bank and it went under within 48 hours.
2: Yeah, and you know, let me just sort of uh, add a, a, a different perspective here too. Um, so, anyone that's been in the you know financial industry or, or watches markets or anything like that. Um, Will know that there's, you know, sort of an understanding that when the Fed eng- embarks on a uh, aggressive interest rate hike cycle, that they break something, right? And they usually break something big, and that's sort of like the, the joke. So, you know, when the Fed starts raising and keeps raising, everyone's every sort of market participant is just sitting there waiting for like the dead bodies to start rising to the surface because it always happens, right? In this case, in particular. You really knew it was going to happen because the, the, the cycle of the lowest interest rates and QE in history was so extended. I mean, it was really about a decade um, that so much craziness, right, so much insane behavior, one one of which would be, you know, buying, uh, you know, bonds at the or let's say even treasury bonds at the highest price in a 40 year Or actually, was it forty year? Yeah, forty year bull market. You know, um, you know, with leverage potentially in some cases. So there's a lot of bodies to float to the surface when the Fed raises rates this high. And I think everyone needs to remember what happened back in two thousand and eight and two thousand and nine. You know, wasn't just the you know the crisis and the bailouts. There was a huge power consolidation that happened afterwards. Because when you when the Fed creates a scenario where people or, or the system itself is struggling and on the verge of failure, uh, the, Fed can then, the Fed and the government can then step in and, and play favorites you know, and say, okay, well, you can die and you can live and you can get trillions and then you can buy everything up, right? And that's exactly what happened after 2008. I mean, what happened after 2008? The Fed became much more powerful. I mean, effectively, the Fed can do anything at this point. I don't think there's anything the Fed couldn't do if the crisis was scary enough at this point, you know, and they would just be able to Mm -hmm. do it. And Congress would just say, please, please save us. Right. Um, You know, kind of during COVID, they were doing crazy things there, too. Right. Even more crazy. Right. So so that's the world we're in now. And that was because of 2008. Prior to that, that that was this was not the case, you know. And so I remember very clearly back then there was there was so much uproar over things that now the, the that people just assume is part of regular Fed duties that was completely unprecedented back then. So the amount of power that the Fed consolidated um, post 2008 was massive. The amount of power that the big banks consolidated was massive and is massive. Mm-hmm. Um, beyond that, with the housing market, things happened. In the housing market post two thousand and eight, that w- really changed the fundamentals of how the housing market worked. For example, and I w- and I went really. I mean, this was this was a period of my life where I was just so enra- enraged about what I was seeing. Um, that's now normal stuff, right? So you know, mm-hmm. Americans were getting kicked out of their homes left and right, as everyone remembers, mm-hmm. right? They they were foreclosed on. Nobody was saving them. Right? They were just getting kicked to the curb losing their homes because oh they were you know they were reckless right like as if they were the ones that created the systemic problems and then guess what happened two years later you had blackstone in particular but others as well using the extraordinarily cheap financing that the fed was was pumping out there and they had access to uh through a subsidiary called invitation homes and they were buying up all of the houses that americans got kicked out of and then renting it back to them so mm-hmm. I I want to make sure that everyone understands here that when the fed breaks stuff in a big way which they're in the process of doing that is always an opportunity for power consolidation and that's exactly what I think is going to happen or at least going to be attempted.
0: Yeah um a friend of mine actually sent me a graphic that he'd uh, seen on on Twitter that was pretty um a, a really good graphical representation of how exactly how much uh, the banks, the big wall street banks have consolidated themselves in the past few decades. <laughs> I mean, yeah. uh, we'll put it in the show notes. It's pretty qu It's pretty crazy to look at because it's, um, you know. What what started off, you know, twenty years ago is like ten banks is like three banks now, and when you have this kind of stuff, um, like you're talking about, and and what we're seeing right now, it's it's pretty much inevitable that who, uh, you know, some one of these big bigger banks are going to be the ones that buy up a lot of what's left of, uh, SVB or Signature. I don't know. I mean, it's obviously a uh consolidation, I think, is definitely in the works, and that just tends to be uh what happens during any financial crisis. you know wealth goes up, and uh the people on the bottom get screwed over and over again, so it doesn't really seem like things happening now are any different than they've than they've been in the past, but
1: no, and the really pernicious thing is that the Fed really breaks things in both directions with their monetary policy, so when they're when they were lowering rates and printing money. Post-COVID lockdowns, like they, they basically broke supply chains and pricing mechanisms of the world. That's why inflation flew uh, in 2021 and 2022. Uh, And so, like, not only do they break things when they raise rates really aggressively, but uh, it's true for when they're doing uh, policy decisions in the other direction when they're lowering rates. Like the Fed is really a pernicious actor throughout our economy that is it, either really screwing you by uh, adding fuel to the inflation fire or conversely, the other way just creating a liquidity crisis that, that leads to all this consolidation that, that you just described.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, we're at a, over 100 years of the Fed, so I think it's pretty <laughs> fair to say the data is in and it doesn't work. Make it go away.
2: <laughs> yeah. And also, and also, you know, one of the things I was writing about when I was writing more frequently was uh, this concept of financial feudalism. And, you know, for example, during that period of time, this is just one example of many, but during the period of time when we had the 0% rates um, and, you know, especially large financial institutions and, and, and people that had access to capital markets or the Fed. Could could essentially borrow at nothing, you know. What was your credit card rate? You know, was it zero? You know, what was it two? Was it three? Was it four? Was it five percent? No, it was, you know, nineteen percent. You know, and so you know, there's this, there's this. Again, it's important to understand that um, within that system of the Fed, break, you know, um, making things too easy, pumping liquidity, and then breaking things. It, uh, Key component to, to the power consolidation and wealth consolidation is the fact that there there are people and entities that are uh, favored, right, throughout, systemically favored, um, and then and then the, everyone else who who does not have the ability to uh, access and leverage those low rates. In fact, the only, and I think I discussed this on a pod with Marty once, but the, the only way the, the average person or, or, you know, a normie has, has had the ability to essentially leverage in a big way, like the banks do and the hedge funds do is, is buying homes. Actually, that's, that's always been the one way because when you buy a home and you take a big mortgage, that's what you're doing. So, um, that other than that though, I mean, the, the, the average person, you know, is paying, high rates not they're not not borrowing at zero and just like buying the assets.
0: all right well how about we move on then to um the collapse of silicon valley bank itself and how that sort of played out and then take a look at uh signature banks since we haven't really talked about them too much yet so as most people probably know by now at least people that have looked into this um a lot at least uh, the official narrative thus far is that a lot of what happened with Silicon Valley Bank was uh allegedly triggered by a threat of a downgrade by the credit rated a uh, rating agency Moody's and then Goldman Sachs steps in so i guess we'll um go from there to to talk about some of the stuff uh that led to the collapse of this bank
2: yeah i mean sure so so i'll i'll start there um from my from my uh, understanding of the timeline, and this is interesting too, and sort of plays into what we've been discussing. But uh, what really got it going was a Moody's call to, I believe, Silicon Valley Bank executives saying, "You know, you're on our. You know, you're you're about to be downgraded, essentially." And if you remember, um, again, the two thousand eight two thousand nine period, you will recall that the ratings agencies played a huge role in. In, in, in saying that all these junk mortgage securities were AAA, And of course they were worthless, right? And so the rating agencies are still around and they're still you know doing things sort of in a crony or arbitrary way. But in any event, with that call Silicon Valley Bank then realized that they needed to do something. And part of doing something there was trying to shore up their capital. And so that's when they began trying to raise money and also sell assets. And again, back to what happened with Silvergate when they had to, when they essentially had to prepay the, or they decided to prepay the FHLB loan. Um, this is when Silicon Valley Bank started realizing losses. And when you realize losses, then you know you can't, you you, you have to then take action, um, more action. So it's a sort of like this downward spiral. Once you once you realize a loss, then you, you then you're gonna have more problems. You have to raise money, and then nobody wants to give you money, and then there's, and then you had the bank run thing. But the really interesting thing there is that is the role that Peter Thiel seemed to play in that in the, in the yeah. sense that he re, I mean, once he came out or once it became public that he was telling all the, you know, the founders fund to pull all of their money from SBB, That was it. I mean, that was the end of the bank. And so by by effectively doing that, Silicon Valley Bank was 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 murdered, um, you know, and so that's the timeline as I understand it. And yeah, it's, it's, it's bizarre. Um, you know, and again, look, Moody's could do that to anyone. And that's the scary thing. You know, Moody's can sort of go, but would they do it to JP Morgan? You know what I mean? Like, would they dare do it to JP Morgan? Probably not. But they're going around now looking at other regional banks. Uh, you sent that article about that i think they're looking at like zion bank and a a bunch of others
0: yeah Um, Comerica. um there's a few i think it's six in total first republic is another one Mm -hmm. exactly
2: and so the moment you do that you're sparking something so you know what role is moody's playing in this you know to what extent is it intentional is it not you know again though i go back to the fact that you know would 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 it be allowed even even if, let's say, one of the biggest, like a J.P. Morgan or something, what if they had similar issues? Would Moody's be allowed politically to actually make that phone call for that downgrade? You know, I, if and if not, that's exactly how you consolidate
1: everything. Yeah, and literally, as we're talking right now, First Republic, which you just mentioned, their their shares were halted. Uh, they were li- limited down as soon as the market opened today. So it seems like <laughs> Moody's. Is, is taking that back under as we speak
0: uh- right
2: right so so again i mean it's 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 to get this is what i think people need to understand it's like to get the ball rolling on uh a total bank run is not that difficult and so it it, it feels to me as if it's being allowed you know sort it's, it's sort of being encouraged perhaps even you know, to 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 on on these on these non quote systemically important banks, right? The too big to fails, um, you know. Yeah.
1: And so, I was just gonna say, and that's, it's, I mean, we've we've really seen this again, uh, being somewhat close to companies that are they're scrambling for bank accounts uh, in the wake of all these bank runs and failures, J.P. Morgan, Bank of America. Wells Fargo are benefiting massively. People are flooding to those banks to open accounts, move their deposits there as quickly as possible.
2: Right, because right, exactly because as of what we said, which is that they're too big to fail, and essentially in bed with the state completely. I mean, they just they're just the same thing, effectively. Uh, oh, and so I looked at the article you sent Whitney, and yeah, so so that was in the title, First Republic. Uh, Moody's puts First Republic and five U.S. banks on downgrade watch. Western Alliance of America, yeah. So I mean, there you go. <laughs> you know, I mean, oh, th- this is this is how you it, it, again. If if they were thinking about doing this to J.P. Morgan, you'd probably get a phone call. Moody's would get a phone call, and they'd be told, "Don't do it." So they're clearly, I think, probably being encouraged to to do this. You know, and then for what for what ends?
1: Yes, second bank on that list, Western Alliance. Their trades were just halted as well for volatility. So it seems like that's going on there.
2: As well. Yeah, it's ongoing. It's 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 ongoing. It seems like a a snowball that's intentionally being allowed to happen.
0: So let's talk about. Uh, you mentioned Peter Thiel a little bit ago. So let's talk about him and, and his role because he even have mainstream media. Uh, at least financial journalists, sort of talking about his role. So you have uh, Dave Troy, a mainstream media investigative journalist, I think. Um, He said something like, uh, SVB did not properly hedge its risks against two threats, the first of those risks being concentration of influence by Peter Thiel. So is he, I guess, referring to uh, the influence of of Thiel on startups that were banking at SVB specifically? I think...
1: That is certainly the case, but I would also add it's not on the individual companies within Founders Fund's portfolio, but just in the Valley more generally. I think people in the venture space look at Peter Thiel uh, and put him on a pedestal, and if he's doing something, they, they, they're probably they're a bunch of sheep who move at the crowd. So if, if Peter signals something, they're probably going to follow him. Um, so it's not, it's not just Founders Fund's. Portfolio companies, but just the valley more generally as well.
0: Right. Okay. So what's interesting to me about this, you have some companies, like one of the um f- a f- fintech startup called Brex that's backed by Teal and another PayPal guy, um, was able to get billions of dollars out of Silicon Valley Bank the day before it collapsed. Yeah, which is kind of oh well, I guess spurred by Teal telling people to get their money out to an extent. Um, but it's interesting to me just because Brex is tied up with other people around sort of this PayPal sphere. Sometimes people call it the PayPal mafia. So, in that particular company, Brex, it's backed by Teal and another, um, uh, I think PayPal, not co founder, but one of the early CEOs when Teal and Musk were both there. And then uh, you have that particular company, Brex, teaming up with uh, OpenAI, uh, which is ChatGPT's parent company. Uh, cre- uh to create advanced ai powered tools for cfos and their teams so basically turning chat gpt into you know uh, something that can be used to probably get rid of a lot of jobs in the finance sector um because you know well i've been talking about in some of my recent work how chat gpt is poised to you know they're talking about how it's passing bar exams it can uh, replace lawyers it'll replace mainstream media journalists so interesting to see some of those connections there and also musk himself uh, was talking about uh, who, by the way, has a, sorry, I f- guess I forgot to mention that. Musk has a, a stake, I think, or helped co-found OpenAI, ChatGPT's parent company, and in, is part of the same PayPal nexus. Uh, he was going to, um, said he was open to the idea of buying Silicon Valley Bank to turn Twitter into a digital bank. Kind of interesting, huh?
2: Yeah, the, 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 that was that was a strange comment. He also made a comment, though, yesterday, I think it was, about Chat. GPT did you did you did you all see that that was kind of a, a strange because someone was saying um, you know open AI went from being open to not open <laughs> and it went from being a non-profit to like apparently very interested in profits and Musk said something about that he was like oh well, how, how I gave 100 million just a non-profit and now all of a sudden it's not you know not a nonprofit. like what happened there is that legal so
1: yeah
2: right so yeah Marty do you want to add anything there because I, I don't really have too much to say on that
1: yeah, yeah, I was, like OpenAI is like a really weird story because, like you mentioned, it started as a nonprofit. I think Elon pumped a bunch of cash into it because he was really afraid of AI and said, "All right, if we're if we're going to go after AI, we want it to be in a nonprofit way." So it's it's more open source to an extent. But Sam Altman, who is the CEO of OpenAI, I think at one point he realized the potential profits that can be driven from this technology and deciding you know what we're not going to be nonprofit anymore we're going to make this a profit driven business oh, from what yeah. I, from what i understand it's earth uh irks me uh, elon a bit but uh, one interesting thing to know with open ai and its founder sam altman he's also the founder of worldcoin which is an attempt to create like a cbdc like global Digital currency.
0: Weren't they the guys scanning people's faces (laughs) or irises for money? They're
1: still doing it. They're attacking. uh, uh, Yeah, they are attacking. I would use the word attacking. They're, They're down in Africa scanning people's irises and unloading them onto their wallet right now.
2: Yeah, I remember oh, that. Yeah, yeah. I think I actually, I didn't even know that was still going on. That's scary. I'll have to look into that. But
0: yeah, I, totally. I, th-
2: I think that was the. I think the marketing ploy was that if you scan your iris, they'll give you some free World War. Yeah. or something. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like it was like. Can, can you imagine how how little they think of people, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, ChatGPT. I mean, they pretty much have a bunch of people thinking they're playing with some cool toy, but they're right. basically training this AI algorithm to take all their jobs away. And now they've released this big upgrade of it because, you know, millions of users training this algorithm for them for free. And then they can license it or uh, team up with companies like this Teal-backed Brex company, right? And then use all that um, data that people are freely giving them to come in and, and do a whole bunch of, you know, stuff that's automating more and more. Uh, jobs. Yeah. So I have a lot to say about chat GPT, but I don't want to get too off topic. So, um, to go back to Peter Thiel for a second. So you guys, I'm sure remember that a couple years ago, Peter Thiel made a really unusual comment about Bitcoin and and crypto. Um, he had on a panel with Mike Pompeo, who was either secretary of state or CIA director at the time. I can't Mm -hmm. remember. Uh, Which one, uh, he essentially said that, you know, even though he claimed, he prefaced this statement by saying that he was pro-crypto and a a Bitcoin maximalist, he claimed uh, that Bitcoin may also be a Chinese financial weapon. Uh, and this is interesting in the context of what we talked about a little bit ago. Like people, like Elizabeth Warren, for example, and a, a lot of other prominent Democrats and also uh, Republicans as well are making the claim that uh, cryptocurrency and specifically Bitcoin are national security threats.
2: Yeah. So, 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 so that that was I remember when that happened, and I went kind of a little a little uh, crazy on Twitter because it was so it was so infuriating to me um, to see him say that. Yeah, that was like uh, spring of two thousand and twenty-one. Um, you know, let, let me just kind of dissect that a little bit. Now, Peter Thiel, for all of his, um, what we what we may not like about him, is a very intelligent individual, right? He's not stupid, right? He's Well, smart. sure, yeah. Right. And so he knows exactly what his words mean, and he knows what he's saying. It's not um, difficult. Now, if you're going to come out there and say that Bitcoin could be a Chinese weapon against the United States while you're standing next to Mike Pompeo that is a very destructive narrative. Totally putting out there. Yeah. And so he knows that there's no way he doesn't know. He doesn't know that. And so he's sort of seeding that narrative. And that is a pure, you know, national security, deep state, um, talking point period. And he's also a guy who, you know, if he claims to believe in freedom, you know, to spin Bitcoin in such a way, when he knows full well that China has not been encouraging to Bitcoin, you know, has been has been in, in many steps of the way cracking down on yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. It's not like China has been. Yeah, let's 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 really advance the cause of Bitcoin. I have been it's it's been quite the opposite, in fact. So for him to say that, it's just completely dishonest. Um, so that that's a red flag right there, and and also. If you actually believe in freedom, you know, as Marty has basically dedicated his life to linking Bitcoin with with freedom and American values, which I completely agree with that view. Um, to to denigrate Bitcoin in 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 this sort of a way, when he clearly understands that it it does embody in so many ways the ethos of the Republic of the United States, uh, is a huge red flag. And so, you know, for me. I feel like Peter Thiel is always talking out of both sides of his mouth. I feel like he, um, whether he's doing it on purpose or not is, is, is unknown. But I will say that he is, he, he's too often completely contradicting himself and he he portrays himself in one way, but then, but then says things that are completely antithetical to what he's saying. So a very strange character for sure. Obviously, I know Whitney has done a lot of, um, uh. Work on on him, and uh, of course Palantir and all that stuff, and his ties to the national security state. But yeah, this was a weird um, comment, and I'll never forget it. You know, I, unless he unless he clears that up. I mean, that was a very concerning and, in my opinion, uh, huge red flag and destructive narrative to be seeding out there, which is also completely false
0: yeah i mean it's weird because he made that statement and a year later he's at the bitcoin magazine conference talking about how great bitcoin is after calling it a year before like a, a chinese financial weapon and he definitely is a contradictory guy so i think he definitely wants to posture a lot to the pro-freedom crowd so you know he'll portray himself for example as a bitcoin maxi and then go and talk, call it a chinese financial weapon he'll call himself a libertarian and uh, he's only built the most like damaging software for freedom in the hands of every single U.S. intelligence agency um, that's used to profile, uh, you know, thought crime and is an integral part of this war on domestic terror. And you even had people uh, saying on on websites like Seeking Alpha that uh, Peter Thiel should use uh, Palantir to rein in Bitcoin after he made these comments. And that is not someone who is libertarian at all uh but you know he likes to posture as that for whatever reason yeah and says, i think well, it's a calculated pr move not unlike elon musk trying to uh cater to a very specific audience you know through what he he puts out publicly his tweets his memes and all of that while at the same time it seems like his actions a lot of time he's playing a different game you know
2: yeah it's it's weird i mean it definitely peter peter thiel definitely seems like a person who's saying he's one thing, and then every action he takes seems to not confirm anything he says about himself. Very bizarre guy.
1: Yeah, it's it's very perplexing. It's like he's the, one of the hardest people to read from my perspective. Because like, is he trying to take a superposition where he'll talk out of both sides of his mouth and put money in both directions—pro freedom with Bitcoin and pro dystopian hellscape with companies like Palantir? I don't know if he's...
0: And also the companies he backs through Founders Fund, like Anduril, which is run by Palmer Luckey, the guy that uh, made Oculus Rift, uh, left Facebook, created Anduril, which is a startup basically for U.S. national security. And it's all about creating basically a surveillance um, apparatus on the U.S.-Mexican border, ostensibly to stop illegal immigration, but it will also keep people from going from the U.S. to Mex- Mexico not just keep people from going to Mexico to the U.S. right and it's all uh surveillance drones weaponized drones and these you know surveillance tower I mean it's basically the Sauron tower and you know these guys love their like Lord of the Ring uh you know references and all that stuff but it's a uh, I don't know. He's also put a lot of money in companies like Carbine 911, which is all tied up with the Epstein network. I've talked about them before. And they're basically steadily taking over the entire uh, United States 911 emergency services call system uh, right now. And part of that is actually thanks to legislation put through by Congress last year. Uh, So anyway, I'll be uh, circling back to that at some point, hopefully soon. Uh, But there's a you know, Founders Fund is invested in all sorts of Orwellian, hellish stuff. So I don't know. It's really hard for me to see these guys as as pro freedom. <sighs> also, anyway, I would, uh, Wendy, I just one last thing I yeah. would add. Like
2: something that I've thought about a little bit is, you know, if they're going to roll, if, if if a big attempt to roll out a CBDC is coming, which I think we all believe is, um, you know. How useful would it be to have the big players in Silicon Valley and banking to effectively rally around it? And so I wonder if part of what's going on here with Silicon Valley Bank is now now the Valley um, feels indebted in some way, perhaps to the to the state and um, maybe more likely to be uh, amenable or participatory in, you know, some sort of panopticon digital currency. Um, I'm, I'm just, I'm guessing that the, 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 the first step along the way to a CBDC will be somehow, and I'm not sure exactly how, but somehow, um, promoted as a public private partnership, right? Like,
0: I was just going to say that. Yeah. I think there's going to be some sort of public private pre CBDC potentially rolled out alongside it. Maybe following sort of like that, um, the spur coin model in Russia through spur Bank, Russia's largest bank. It's run by Herman Graf, who's all tied up with the World Economic Forum, uh, but it's technically not a CBDC, right? But it's it's already widely in use, and it's basically a public-private thing. Yeah,
1: a public a public-private CBDC is the only way they can do it. There's no way the government could actually like write the software that produces a CBDC. They couldn't even produce a website for healthcare.gov. That actually, <laughs> works. Like they're going to need. Yeah, uh, they're going to need the tech firms to build it for them.
2: Right, right. And so, is this is this, is this related to Silicon Valley Bank in some way? Yeah, I don't I don't know. I mean, it's one of these weird things where we kind of have to see uh, how it plays out. But I do I do think, and this is why I really wanted to come on and, and be part of this is that we need to be talking about it now because the reason COVID the COVID psyop was so effective, you know, and it psyop to me for a few months completely. Uh, and I'm pretty ashamed of that, but I, I vowed to learn my lesson, um, was that it was so kind of, it was, it was just, it was just so much at once out of nowhere that something I personally wasn't really thinking about. And so, um, yeah, we, we, we need to be talking about this stuff ahead of time, even though we don't know exactly what they're up to.
0: Yeah, totally. Well, on that note, um, really quick, if there's some sort of uh, public private partnership, Right. It may not necessarily have to be overtly one because we got to keep in mind, too, if you're talking about Silicon Valley specifically and specifically the big five tech companies, almost I'm pretty sure all of them at this point are U.S. government contractors, specifically military and or intelligence contractors. I mean, there's several that are both. So, Mm -hmm. you know, they could easily be pulled in to build the infrastructure and it could still be essentially framed as, you know, an entirely public sector project. Right. So,
1: Yeah. I think the way it's going to play out is this banking crisis is going to continue to go on. Banks are going to fail and they're going to hit the head where they say, all right, the banks don't work anymore. We're nationalizing them. The Fed is going to control all the deposits and here's your CBDC wallet. Uh, one of the tech firms helped us build it, download it. Right. How you access your money now.
0: Well, before we get there, let's go back and talk about um, a couple of things that have already happened before we get to the point of discussing where things stand now and how things are likely to play out from here on out. So uh, we haven't quite talked about Signature Bank yet, but we've alluded to it. And there's been claims uh, that its shutdown was completely arbitrary. This is coming from crypto venture capitalist Nick Carter on on Twitter. Uh, but there's other people that have made this claim, and and uh, Carter's claims specifically uh, come from Barney Frank, who is the guy from the Frank Dodd, you know, banking uh, act stuff uh, post 2008, um, and he was apparently added to Signature Bank's board, I believe, in 2015. And um, he essentially uh, said that Signature Bank didn't really have to be shut down when it was shut down. So the question is, why was it shut down? What's the timeline here? What doesn't make sense? And what's really going on? <laughs> so whoever wants to, to start unpacking that, be go right ahead.
1: It was really weird because uh, Signature was shut down on a Sunday, uh, last Sunday, after Silicon Valley Bank went down so the fact that it was closed on a weekend it didn't even have uh the potential to open up on monday and begin servicing withdrawals if that is what was happening was was a bit odd and another thing with the shutdown is that it was a bit different than silicon valley bank where the fdic came in and said all right you know, we're taking over uh on sunday the new york department of financial services stepped in it said Signature, you're shutting down before market open on Monday. And as Barney Frank uh, mentioned earlier this week, he he was pretty confident that the bank was liquid enough to service withdrawals. So it was a bit odd that the NYDFS stepped in and shut them down out of nowhere.
2: Yeah, and it was interesting too. So when I was first trying to research what happened, I was just looking up Signature Bank, right, and trying to read as much as I could about. Any article about it. And it was really bizarre because every article was saying the same thing, which was nothing. You know, they were just like, New York Department of Financial Services decided to shut down Signature Bank. Uh, uh, That's it. You know, there there was no timeline, there was no rationale. And so the only thing um, that sticks out here is Signet. Uh, again, back to Silvergate, I remember, as we discussed earlier, had the SEND network, which was um, crucial to providing liquidity and the ability to get in and out of exchanges and fiat to stable coins and all that stuff. And so the other one was Signet. And so it, it appears to me clearly that the intention with getting rid of Signature was to get rid of um, Signet as well and and then make that sort of uh, ecosystem struggle Now, again, like New York Department of Financial Services, as Marty mentioned, like New York is just, of course, the most dirty place when it comes to stuff like this, because it's the, you know, it's the, it's the womb of the too big to fail, right? It's the womb of like Wall Street. And so, you know, that, that, that that state, that city is going to protect that um, at all costs. And so that was, you know, that, that, that's strange in itself. Um, but but I think, yeah. And, and, and the fact, as I mentioned earlier, that they're now saying the FDIC apparently is saying that anyone who buys Signature has to close down the crypto activities. Well, well why? You know, like what what is going on here? So, yeah, it, it makes no sense. I mean, the Signature, I'm open to other ideas here, but uh, I didn't even see anything about asset sales. So, for example, as we discussed earlier, Silicon Valley Bank and Silvergate were both triggered into selling assets, which created realized losses. For a, for a variety of reasons, I don't. I haven't read that about Signature. Perhaps they did, but I didn't read that. And so uh, again, it's, I'm, I'm waiting for someone to explain to me what what exactly triggered Signature Bank. What what made it different? There's, t- at the end of the day, it, it's it's impo- in my mind impo- impossible that the two the two banks that ran these networks, Sen and Signet just are are the two of the three that ended up dead.
1: Yeah. And from like the asset side of things for signature, particularly you'd think if they have one of the two senators who wrote the bill that defined the type of capital requirements for these banks was sitting on the board. He'd he'd actually um, be very astute to making sure that the bank that he was associated with was, was capitalized the correct way. So yeah, it was all it was all very, very weird how it happened. The fact that it happened on a Sunday, sort of out of nowhere. Um,
0: very odd. Well, here's one possibility. I think maybe well, so the the bailout of Silicon Valley Bank, which I want to talk about next, I think um the way they got around the loophole they used uh to offer that bailout was about systemic risk, right? So in order to argue for systemic risk, they'd have to be like, well, systemic means other banks are in danger of failing. So I don't know, that could have been sort of... um, the claim that oh, we think Signature Bank's going to be the next to fail, and this is part of our response tied up with the SVB bailout. I mean, maybe I'm I'm wrong on that, but yeah. But it, think it, about
2: think about what you just said, right? I mean, even if they said that, that's just crazy, right? I mean, no, but it's the public justification. Right? Yeah,
0: yeah, but it's the public justification, right? And in this space, there's a lot of preemptive stuff uh, going on. Like, uh, I was, I just did a video the other day about, um, the WEF partnership against cybercrime and they're talking about, you know, uh, going after Bitcoin because of, of ransomware and all this stuff and that they need to pre preemptively, um, go after networks that might engage in some sort of cyber financial cybercrime. Um, you know, I mean, they love preemptive stuff, whether it's financial stuff or the war on domestic terrorism or whatever. I mean, uh, pre-crime is quickly becoming a, a major facet of uh, United States government policy. so well, think
2: about it too that that, that with signature, if they had waited 24 hours, probably there'd, there'd be no even rationale to do anything because you had all right. facilities in right. So it's like they were like, "Let's kill this and then you know announce a a huge bailout right that was, That was weird, too. Yeah, it's, yeah.
1: it's mm-hmm. contradictory in many ways. Like because they wound up bailing out Silicon Valley Bank depositors, and if they really were worried about contagion risk, like why would they shut down Signature Bank? That that just signals that banks of a similar profile are at similar risk, and so you would have a run on those banks as well. Like so, like, if they really wanted to stem contagion. They would have every incentive to make it seem like Signature is very well capitalized. They would try their hardest to keep it open.
0: But maybe if they wanted to close it right to Target Signet, exactly. they're like, Well, we can wrap this up as part of this collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and make it look like uh our shuttering of this is linked to that.
2: Right. Yeah, that's that's what they, that's what they did. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. There's the other thing too about how Signature Bank uh, was facing some major criminal probes apparently before it was shuttered. I
2: saw I saw that. I mean, I guess I guess you could just say um again, you know, if you if you want to kill a bank, all you have to do is say, "Hey, we're looking into you," right? I mean, and I think they do this to people just citizens sometimes too these days, you know, where they can just destroy you.
0: Yeah, by but they, they did this, like yeah. we just talked about to Silvergate as well. Like, right. oh, exactly. we're going to target you because of FTX and Signature as, right. oh, we're going to target you because we think people are using your crypto business or your exposure to crypto to uh, for money laundering schemes. Right. right, which at the
2: end of the day, it seems like they were just looking for an excuse to get rid of these two networks, um, yeah. you know, for a variety of reasons.
0: Yeah, I think that's true because every time, like, you know, the feds come in and accuse someone of of money laundering, (laughs) I mean, it's kind of silly because the national security state launders a ton of money and the big banks launder tons of money uh, for drug cartels and whatever. And people like Catherine Austin Fitz have pointed out that if, you know, the drug trade stopped tomorrow, a lot of these big banks would collapse because they're (laughs) dependent on you know, uh, you know the money laundering of a lot of those uh, illicit funds, whether for, you know, cartels or intelligence agencies or whatever. Like, it, when they actually decide to prosecute these kinds of financial crimes, there's usually, not always, but, you know, sometimes there's an ul- ulterior motive, and I think that's quite probable here, especially when you consider that some of this legislation in the works, like Elizabeth Warren's uh, legislation that argues that crypto is a national security threat, it's about uh terror financing terrorism and money laundering are part of the justifications for that right but it's not like getting rid of crypto is going to stop money laundering money laundering of course preceded crypto's (laughs) existence by many decades so it's not like it'll go away even if crypto magically disappears right
1: no in the in the overarching narrative battle i think that's something really important that we have to dig into and really seed in the minds of the masses is that the biggest perpetrators of money laundering and criminal activity are the big banks and the governments, it's yeah. not people using Bitcoin.
2: Yeah, this goes back and this also goes back to the whole thing where, you know, we're not allowed to have privacy, but they need to have ultimate privacy. You know, we're not allowed exactly. to do anything, but but they can do everything in the shadows. And so yeah, I mean, so if everybody if if everybody's sort of transactions are known and tracked, then whoever is in power can say, oh, it's it's sort of a good blackmail thing too because you can you can just you know what everyone's doing and then you can go up to someone and say hey by the way you know did you do this two years ago and blah 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 and then okay well you can either play with us or you can go to jail you know and so it's like this, yeah it's a great well, this, it's a great this
0: idea story. of financial blackmail has been going on for a long time uh in my book and in, in volume one i actually um Wrote about how Armand Hammer, the guy that ran Occidental Petroleum, was trying to acquire um, a major U.S. bank because so many congressmen had open accounts there for the purposes explicitly of what he called financial blackmail. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So you know, if if there were people thinking about doing this in the early '80s, you know, I'm sure it's happened by now, right? So yeah, I, I
2: think the only the only positive thing I guess I could say about it is like what what they seem to be think they can do is take all of these things that have been going on effectively since the beginning of time, right? I mean, sexual blackmail, financial blackmail, all that stuff is, you could probably find instances of that in every culture that's beyond, you know, or city that's beyond a few thousand people because it's just what humans kind of do, but, um, or psycho humans do. Uh, but <laughs> what, 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 they see, what they seem to be, think they can do is just like completely own it, you know, just, just, just have it on a level that is so institutionalized and dominant that it encompasses everything and there's no sort of black market or wiggle room or freedom. And, and I guess to me that it's such a brazen, uh, goal that I, I, I sort of think it's doomed to fail, but, but yeah, it's, it's certainly what they want. I mean, they're going just for everything.
0: Well, before we leave signature, I just wanted to say that there's a news, uh, a new report out today that claims, uh, Well, it cites the New York financial regulator that shut it down. Their rationale for shutting down Signature Bank, they have now said it was, quote, a significant crisis of confidence in the bank's leadership, end quote
2: yeah it means nothing
0: that doesn't mean yeah anything. i know right they could say that the leadership anything. wasn't yeah. going to get rid of their crypto exactly. business so we're we going like to you. shut you down and whoever buys the bank has to give up all the crypto business exactly
2: <laughs> it's just like we don't like you <laughs> right we don't like the ceo
0: buy yeah if you didn't think that the government is organized crime especially yep. in new york state um i would urge you to reconsider it's <laughs> wild it's crazy it's, it's egregious yeah. it's disgusting Uh, Well, what will come of it? Let's see. Well, how about we talk about the bailout then? So uh, what has the Biden administration said about the Silicon uh, Valley Bank bailout? How has that changed the situation? And how are taxpayers on the hook, uh, even though the Biden administration says they're not? And what can we expect regarding inflation? Uh,
1: So we're diving into the actual mechanics of the bailout. I think what The Treasury, uh, in conjunction with the Federal Reserve and the FDIC said, was essentially, hey, uh, we will buy your debt instruments at par value. So, As we mentioned earlier, a lot of what caused this contagion event in the banking sector was the the Fed raised rates and drove down the value of the debt instruments that are holding on the books. Uh, And they're still, if marked to market, they, they would be significantly depressed and so the bailout is essentially uh, the Fed stepping in and saying hey even though these bonds uh, are worth 85 cents on the dollar we'll buy them at a dollar from you and we'll hold them on our books and at some point in the future um, you can you can buy them back uh, in full when when the markets settle and the banking system becomes more stable so essentially qE5 has started it is, they won't. They won't explicitly say this, but it is quantitative easing, where the Fed steps in and buys depressed assets at par value. It's a bit different than past QE, where they're guaranteeing par value. Uh, but that's essentially what happened.
2: Yeah. So, so one thing I will just add there, I, I think that the specifics are that they're not actually buying the assets, but they're they're colla- like they're taking them as collateral. At par, and then giving the 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 institutions the money, right? So like they're giving them par value, but it's like technically not a purchase, right? Yeah, yeah. So so that's the I guess the difference between QE, but effectively it's the same because because the banks have access to money at par value for assets that clearly are not trading at par value, um, which is incredible. Like I mean, think think about it again like. 10 years ago, I would have just been nonstop writing blog piece after blog piece losing my head because it was so insane. But it's like people don't even blink an eye now. Whereas that would be the equivalent of, let's say Whitney has her portfolio at Schwab. And you know, two months ago, she bought all the high-flying tech stocks um, and then they crashed 50%. And now, uh-oh, you know, I am 50% less wealthy. And then, then the Fed comes in and says, "Oh, don't worry, Whitney. Um, we're going to pretend that didn't happen, and we're going to just go back two months ago and and to the to the value they were at, and we'll we'll just lend you money based on that, and you're you're going to be fine, right? Wouldn't that, wouldn't that be nice, right? I mean, it's it's a it's effectively, um, it's effectively pausing reality for banks um, so that they can get money and be liquid. And so you can argue that." you can argue if you want that that's important at this moment but the bigger but the bigger point is that how do you ever get out of stuff like this right i mean once it's exactly what started in 2008 once you go down a path like this you you cannot go back I mean you really can't. And the Fed was trying to prove that it could kind of go back to normal by raising rates, but look, look what happens. They they raise rates a bunch and now they're doing crazy stuff again, right? Right away, right? Mm-hmm. And so and so you know the taxpayer angle though is interesting because um you know JP Morgan this morning is saying that the amount of liquidity that could flow into banks could be up to 2 trillion. And what they're that the 2 trillion estimate is coming from they they basically took the assets of the bonds of uh, maybe the treasury bonds I'm not sure exactly which fixed income securities of non non too big to fail banks only and said how much do they hold on their balance sheets and I think their number is two trillion so JP Morgan's is effectively saying that two trillion could just be pumped into banks um, if they if they if they want to use this facility very quickly so so just think about that I mean to just to to say that I mean yeah the taxpayer is not not only on the hook like civilization is on the hook you know what I'm saying like, like yeah. this is so much bigger than the taxpayer this is this is this is again this is just another another I guess um, uh, salvo in like a, a coup you know effectively it's just it's just a coup
0: I heard someone describe it as private uh, privatizing gains but socializing losses yes
1: yes yes it's certainly that I mean. I mean it's all a function. I mean, to put it most simply, there's too much debt and not enough dollars. And mm-hmm. when the Fed raises rates and pulls dollars out of the market, like the, the interest expenses on the debt that exists become impossible to pay. Like, it's just a function of how the Federal Reserve operates like and how the fiat monetary system operates. We've created too much debt and the Fed, there are not enough dollars to service the interest on the debt, let alone the principal on the debt as well. And so like functionally the Fed has to produce more dollars, print more dollars to, to begin trying to service the debt. And so what's really interesting We go back to 2008, uh, and then you fast forward to 2020, 2008, Fed steps in, prints a bunch of money, lowers rates, and then 2016, 2017 begins to reverse that policy. Then we get to 2020, it was actually before 2020, in September of 2019, we had a repo market spasm, which was, mm-hmm. which was driven by Fed policy, trying to pull dollars out of the system, something broke. And then uh, coincidentally, 2020 COVID happened, and they were able to lower rates, print a bunch of money. Uh, and then fast forward to today, just three years later, a year and a half after they started raising rates and pulling dollars out of the system, it's broke again. So I think what I'm trying to highlight here is just the, the compression of the time between uh Fed policy decisions it's something breaking. It's accelerating at a, a rapid pace. And so right now the Fed like if we thought the amount of money that the Fed printed in twenty twenty was insane, the amount of money that they're gonna have to print uh, after this breakdown of the banking system is going to be unfathomable. They're gonna have to print trillions and trillions of dollars and that is just going to exacerbate inflation terribly i mean the, the fed uh really didn't want to be put in a position right now to lower rates because inflation is still high uh, It's reported 6%. yeah
0: but blackrock is saying that they think the fed is going to keep tightening and that's interesting because the blackrock and at the end of 2019 uh basically convince the Fed to alter its monetary policy, the going direct reset or going direct policy. So I don't really know what that means, but maybe BlackRock has reason to believe, you know, reasons we don't know what they are exactly, uh, you know, something they know that we don't know that leads them to expect that the Fed's going to keep tightening.
2: One one commentary I saw sort of after the, the bailout on Sunday someone was saying that this could allow the Fed to keep raising rates while keeping banks operating. Right. So like the banks don't have to necessarily face reality, but they'll still, and and therefore they could sort of keep functioning, but we're, we we could keep raising rates for everyone else and kind of keep, keep messing with the economy. Um, but I, uh, I, I guess, but yeah. my, but my, feel, and that is an interesting theory. And I think, and I think if they do continue to raise rates, we need to take that more seriously, but I will, on a, on a, on a just a sort of personal level if i had to be if i was a betting man i would say no they they're pretty much done and the reason i say that is because with the the drop in two year treasury rates it's the fastest drop in the last i think this week since 1987 um so the two year treasury yield mm. was uh has dropped 100 basis points or 1% in like 3 days right and what that what that signals and, and historically tends to always signal is that the market is saying you're, there's no way you're raising rates, and in fact you're going to cut rates, and that's what people are betting— tri- you know, tri- essentially hundreds of billions of dollars on that that bet. Um, and my my conclusion would be that's probably correct—that that, that the market is accurate on that. Um,
1: yeah, the, or mo- the mostly done. the banking crisis is. It's, it's becoming abundantly clear that's not isolated to the united states it's spreading to europe and affecting the global economy i think i agree yeah. with yes. michael they're they're going to have to lower rates
0: yeah so you have what we talked about earlier you have uh six other banks i th- i think all based in the u.s on downgrade watch and then you have this this stuff going on with credit suisse right now um which has led many to argue that the the contagion here um is spreading into Europe. But there's a couple interesting things uh, to note about Credit Suisse. So you know how we were talking about not that long ago, like Signature was being investigated, Silvergate was being investigated, and I think it was Silvergate that was having problems and was going to delay, among other things, um, the filing of their annual report. Um, And Credit Suisse actually had a lot of those same problems. So... Uh, from March second, there was there was a a news headline: Credit Suisse uh, breach spells personal info of high net worth clients uh, all over the place. And then uh, I think not long after that, Credit Suisse delays annual report after late call from the SEC. So there seems to be uh, and the the subtext of that from CNN is Credit Suisse just can't catch a break, <laughs> right? And this is before they had uh, you know their current. Those poor guys, yeah. <laughs> um, so anyway, uh, they—that's interesting, right? Because now uh, Credit Suisse, obviously, having a lot of problems, and there's claims, you know, now that like the Swiss um, central bank is may have to step in and all this stuff to rescue it, and um, obviously there's there's some problems there, but it's just interesting that it seems like they were having problems before, and maybe. You know, if they think they couldn't weather that storm, they see an opportunity to sort of blame something else for their woes. Uh, any thoughts on that?
1: I think, I mean, Credit Suisse has been in a vulnerable position even before this week. I think they had a mass exodus of deposits last year, and they were they were already critically weak. And I think a lot of people on Wall Street were looking at Credit Suisse and just waiting for it to die. That seems like this banking crisis spreading from the U.S. to, to Europe is, is just going to be the final nail in the coffin for Credit Suisse. And I do believe that the Swiss National Bank stepped in overnight to provide a $54 billion mm-hmm. loan to uh, Credit Suisse. But it, but it seems like uh, as U.S. markets open today that they're beginning to price uh, the, the probability of a Credit Suisse failure. Uh, almost it's almost a certainty now with how their credit default swaps are trading
2: yeah so so yeah as marty said i mean credit Suisse has been dying for like decades kind of like it's been it's a long time um yeah but so, so have a
0: lot of other banks in europe right so if credit Suisse falls what does that mean for other banks in and deep shit like deutsche bank <laughs> right <laughs> and right and Deutsche St. bank's and stuff.
2: stuff yeah yeah no i think well here's the here's the key thing um and why Credit Suisse is just a whole different can of worms from what we've been discussing, but also could lead into the same kind of path that we've seen with the CBDC. Because um, so so Credit Suisse, I mean, what they would have to do there is it's, it's unimaginable to my mind, you know, how Credit Suisse is, you know, and their assets and what they owe and the counterparties is linked to everything else. You know, what I mean, it would be, it would be, it would be, you know, crazy cascades if if they, if something was you know happened there. So of course the Swiss National Bank I think did, as Marty said, step in with fifty billion or something last night. Um, but you know, to 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 me, I want to go back to the big point, which is this system is obviously not sustainable for any long period of time, because every time you do these giant bailouts or liquidity injections, all you're doing is just kind of keeping it afloat without addressing any of the underlying issues. Like the balance sheet issues are not being solved. None of this stuff is being solved, but they're just keeping everything sort of floating up with liquidity. And what that does then is, which is what we've seen over the last 10 years, you just build up more, right? You build up more debt. You build up more of a bigger balance sheet. You you end up with a bigger problem down the road. And my, my personal view is that the powers that be um, completely understand this. I mean, they they know this is why they're talking about a great reset, right? Because they know a reset is coming. And so what they're trying to do is they want to reset it <laughs> themselves instead of allowing the public or, or even, you know, legislative bodies like Congress to, to have a role in resetting it. They, they want to essentially preempt that process. And and create their own reset in their minds, and then once the time is right, you know, just just push it all in there. And so that's that's you know where where I think this is going, you know. And I and I think that we need to really be open to the possibility of anything because to actually attempt the reset in the way they want it, you do need a lot of fear, and you need a lot of people being hurt. And so sort of like the panic that we saw over the weekend, but, but times 10. And that's what I think we're going to see in the next year.
0: All right. So uh, one question I have regarding, uh, regarding all of this. So if the crisis is systemic, which it seems that it is, and it seems that this is gearing up to be something on par, if not worse than to the 2008 financial crisis, what about bail-ins, right? So after 2008, you know, the Dodd-Frank thing comes out and it's like, oh, no bailouts. But it did allow bail-ins to happen, right? Or at least that legislation allows for bail-ins to happen. And bail-ins as opposed to bail-outs. So bailouts is taxpayer money bailing out the bank. But bail-ins is when banks uh, use depositor money to sort themselves out, right? So what do you think um, is the likelihood of seeing some of that if things worsen?
1: I think it's pretty high. I would not be surprised at all. And, and we begin to see this in other parts of the world. I mean, Lebanon, probably most uh, notably in the last couple of years, they've they've done bail-ins where they got put, their central bank and their banking system got put in such a situation that they said, hey, uh, anything over 200,000 uh, uh, Lebanese pounds, we're going to confiscate, and it's ours now. Um, and the situation uh, is not much different here in the United States or in Europe. So I think everything is on the table. They're going to print money. And uh, I would certainly not be surprised if they do bail-ins on top of that as well.
2: Yeah, I, I think, um, so that would be a huge thing. I think Cyprus had the bail-ins, right? They were mm-hmm. the only example I could kind of think of. Um, and then, then Bitcoin actually rallied a ton right after that, I, I remember. um If they do bail-ins, right, which, again, is where depositors take a haircut on their accounts, which is the exact opposite of what just happened over the weekend, uh, in my opinion, that would be part of the sign, effectively, right? I mean, to to have bail-ins would be such a scaremongering thing to people because, you know, in a tweet I wrote a couple of days ago, I said three things are needed to facilitate the rollout of CBDCs, and the first one I said is make holding money in banks feel completely unsafe, and so a bail-in would definitely do that. You know, it would it would make people understand that their money is not safe and it could be haircutted at any moment, and therefore clamor for a solution. And of course, you know, people like myself already have our solution. You know, in Bitcoin, but. Um, You know, your average person is going to is going to is going to say or even business would say, you know, oh, we need a solution quick. And there you go. You know, a CBDC could be that solution. Just hold your money, you know, in this in this CBDC and it's safe. It's not you know, it's not being loaned out. It's not being leveraged. It's just right here. It's for you at all times and it's completely safe and guaranteed. And I think you need some sort of fear point like that. And maybe maybe bail-ins is a trigger. I don't know. There could be a lot of triggers, but that's a potential one.
1: Yeah, and I think bail-ins actually interesting in the context of CBDCs could be like a normalization tactic because with the CBDC, we're seeing it in China already. Like it wouldn't necessarily be a bail-in, but it would it would be like a normalization of the money in your wallet has an expiration date where you can have your CBDC wallet, and the Fed will airdrop money into it and they'll say hey you have two weeks to spend this and you can only spend it on this that and the other goods on this list um which is uh, like an interesting nudging that could happen as well
2: yeah that's a good point i mean they've been talking about this forever which is which is like essentially forcing people to spend money which which is exactly what that would do you know you they they just airdrop you money that you have to spend and in, in, a, in a month. I mean, it was just like rats in an experiment. just totally
1: crazy.
0: So um, as we wrap up here, I want to, there was one thing I wanted to talk about too regarding um, how all of this has been affecting stable coins, specifically USDC and their issuer Circle. So there was a lot of concern about Circle because of they, I think they were one of the most exposed companies after the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. And now, of course, you know, not necessarily so. And apparently um, they've decided to ha- have reserves um, uh, now at BNY Mellon, <laughs> which is funny to me because uh, and they're a really dirty bank and pop up in my books a lot. So I don't know. I'm when you look at how a lot of the other big stable coins, like Tether, for example, they have their banks at Deltec, the Bahamian bank that was super tied up with uh, FTX and is like insanely shady themselves. Uh, it just kind of sticks out to me that a lot of these stable coins seem to have their reserves at some of the. I don't know most suspect banks possible, but it also you know it it seems like there's an effort to sort of uh, clamp down to an extent on stable coins or at least get them uh, tied up with uh, you know certain banks that are are friendly to some of these uh, unfortunate agendas that we've been discussing today. Um, so, um, do you guys have any thoughts about how all of this has been affecting uh, stable coins and sort of the politics between? Uh, stable coins and a a likely cbdc launch Um, i think
1: as michael explained earlier in this discussion like the the, the us sees stable coins as somewhat of a systemic risk but if you look at the other side of the coin they could see it as an incredible opportunity as well where they can co-opt circle consolidate them into banks that they fully control and then somewhat take over uh, circle and control it very uh, just fully control it. I think if I were to put my chips on the table and bet on who becomes the uh, private entity and the public private um, cooperation for a CBDC that circle would be high on that list. So I think what we're seeing now is sort of like a cornering of circle into these systemically important banks and at some point in the future uh, the government or the Federal Reserve could step in and say, hey, we're, we're going to need you to create this CBDC pilot for us.
2: Yeah, that's that's a really good point. So to expand on that, I, I agree with with everything you said. Um, so if you think about it, and this goes back to my point earlier, which is that there is a decentralized sort of organic way you could reset, um, which is what I think there's a lot of, Bitcoin is a huge part of that, for example, right? I mean, that that's exactly Kind of what Bitcoin is here to do, um, and then there's the WeF and others who um, are taking it upon themselves to reset us into what they want. So there's like these two competing forces that are that are battling effectively right now, um, and so the stablecoin ecosystem I'm starting to to view as crucial in this in this battle because thus far you've had and and I'm including you know sort of the network Sen and Signet in this as well right you you have sort of a wild west a little bit of a system that's developed over the last few years with sta- around stable coins and around these um twenty four seven um uh, networks right that 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 facilitate the cryptocurrency ecosystem and that's more or less been uh uh, sort you could put it into this sort of decentralized organic um, resetting of things, but I think now the USG and the Fed see that as g- having gone too far. Let's say right, like this is this is this is too organic, right? This is too kind of out of our control, and so I think Marty made a really good point in that this could be right now we could be seeing the very beginning stages of of the, the, the government and the Fed starting to sort of co-opt these. T- and they may have already been, you know, like Circle, I agree. I mean, Circle has always kind of been like, eh, it's kind of like red flaggy to me, um, always, right? But like even more so. And so this, this goes back to what we discussed earlier, which is that there could be this transition point where – a C, you know, a, you, you get a C, certain CBDC, let's, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, a certain stable coin, let's say it's USDC, that would be the top contender in my view as well, that becomes sort of state sanctioned in a way, right? And so circle maybe all of a sudden in, in six months is all at JP Morgan, right? And and, and JP Morgan is is, is doing circle and, and, and this USDC, and it's all integrated like that. And then they can just allow it to run that way for a while and it could sort of effectively be like a proto cbdc that's kind of ostensibly run privately but then in a, a future crisis right they could they could create a crisis with that and say okay no, no no now we need to take it fully under our own control right and that's that's one i think pathway for this to happen
0: Oh, man. Well, one thing that that comes to mind, based on what you just said, you know how we were talking about, or I mentioned earlier, you know, why they were targeting Silvergate after FTX, but not Farmington State Bank, or Moonstone as it was renamed to be. Um, They had just partnered with a company that's very interesting. And one of the main guys on it is the guy that claimed to invent CBDCs. (laughs) Uh, Was, you know, and and that was helping lead, you know, this particular tiny bank in the middle of nowhere in in Washington state that had all this this cash come in Um, from Alameda Research. They were leading some of their digital transformation and, you know, financial services stuff. So, you know, maybe maybe that's what saved them some of their ties to CBDC architects (laughs) or something like that. It honestly would not surprise me at this point. All right. Well, anything else you guys would would like to add in before we we wrap up here? I definitely want to uh, let people listening know, you know, what they can tangibly expect in the coming weeks and months. Um, and, you know, maybe some solutions for people that are worried about having their money in, in banks and, and things like that.
1: But I mean, I think Michael and I would both agree that. Times are dire, the, the Fed and the U.S. government are on their heels and they're going to try to cattle herd uh, citizens into the CBDC future where they have full control. Yeah. This is why I focus all my energy and time on Bitcoin. Cause I view the future is pretty binary. We either get the dystopian hellscape of CBDCs or we get a truly grassroots emergent monetary system built on Bitcoin. Um, so anybody listening who is thinking of how to protect themselves against the CBDC future, I would highly recommend that you begin educating yourself about Bitcoin. And once you're uh, sufficiently educated and confident that, that you believe Bitcoin makes sense and is something worthwhile, uh, acquire Bitcoin. But most importantly, don't, don't only get Bitcoin, do not hold it on an exchange. Bitcoin has native properties that allow you to control it in a wallet that that only you can access and no government or company can stop you from accessing it so it's if you're getting into bitcoin it's not important only important that you buy it but that you actually possess it as well you do not want to hold your bitcoin on exchanges because that will be a pressure point that the government will use I, i believe in the future they will shut down these on and off ramps so it is very crucial while we have the time to do so that people acquire Bitcoin and get it into wallets that they control um, because at some point in the future the government or the Federal Reserve can flip a switch and make it very hard to get Bitcoin.
2: Yeah, yeah. From my from my point of view um, I, I think that I think that you know, as Marty said, right it's a binary and I, and I think that's right. So, you know you, you have to understand I think everyone needs to understand that, you know if we're going to have a more decentralized, let's say, networked world, um, with more freedom, um, versus the, you know, very rigidly hierarchical centralized, you know, sort of panopticon world, which the WEF wants and many, and many in the United States want as well, uh, intelligence agencies in particular, let's say, you know, there's a responsibility that comes with the former, right? The networked, um, decentralized world with freedom. There's a lot of responsibility that comes along with that. And I think that's one of the key things that Marty was saying about Bitcoin. I mean, there's to, to do Bitcoin properly, you know, you really there's a there's a degree of responsibility you need to take and be willing to take that. Um, and so people need to also be responsible for their emotions. And this this is like the primary trigger. Like if, if we go the wrong way, I firmly believe that it's because too many people were not responsible for their own emotions and are allowing fear and just programming to get the better of them, which allows these things to push forward. And, you know, so be, be ready because that is what's going to be triggered. Your, your fear response, you know, your 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 just natural reaction. And of course, like the media, you know, like like these mainstream media, like seriously, there should be a warning on every single like broadcast in CNN, because it is so poisonous to your mind. It is such programming. Um, I, think, I think the best advice I could give is when some new thing happens, that's big and scary, you know, try to just chill out for a second, you know, take a step back, you know, don't just react. Cause I think particularly, you know, people like us too, that we have social media presences that are reasonably large um you feel the need to kind of have a conclusion or have a response or have a reaction kind of quickly and i've found at least personally that the best path is to not do that because let it settle out a little bit like, like see what's how do the how does the system react you know how's the public reacting why are we being triggered in this way and so that would be my my advice would just be Really guard your mind. Really guard your emotions, because that is what that is what's being very intentionally triggered with, with with every psyop to bring us to that state we we all don't want to be.
0: Yeah, I I think that's a really good point. Um, actually, I I've talked to some people from Argentina because you know I live in Chile, and um, you know they had a full blown economic collapse, you know, about twenty years ago. And what I heard from them, you know, is that the best thing you can do in that kind of situation is have is not give in to the panic and the fear, because that's going to lead you to make impulsive uh, decisions you may otherwise have not made. And it's, you're definitely going to be better off if you can keep your cool when, when things get insane um, in the economy. And, you know, it's not just uh, going to be Argentina this time. or just going to be like a certain sector of the US economy. Like all the stuff is, woven together so you know if too much stuff starts to go you know uh we can definitely see what'll happen but i also want to give advice to some people uh who aren't necessarily um you know in crypto or interested in crypto because not all of my audience is so um what would you say what would you guys say to people who you know have accounts at some of the big banks like jp morgan uh wells fargo etc cetera? You know, is their money safe there? Should they think about putting it elsewhere? Uh, and if so, where?
1: I mean, all the big banks are In insolvent. On it. <laughs> In, well, they're they're insolvent essentially. Like, the, the, their only way they're going to survive moving forward is the Fed printing money or launching a CBDC. Like the banking system, the way it's erected with fractional reserve banking and money printing at the Federal Reserve is, is doomed for failure. I mean, personally, I would only keep as much money uh, in the bank as you're willing to lose. I I am again, again, I truly believe, and I know it's a a touchy topic and people get very emotional about it. And that's why I urge people to educate themselves about it. I'm not going to tell anybody to just go buy Bitcoin right now, like ape into it. Um, Educate yourself about it. If you spend the time to learn about it, I, I think that you'll come to the logical conclusion that it makes a lot more sense than the incumbent banking system. Uh, me personally, I hold most of uh, my savings in Bitcoin and not in the banking system. That's what I recommend in terms of like an alternative to the big banks. I really don't think there are many. They're systemically important. They're the only ones that will get bailed out every time a crisis arises. Maybe a small community bank, but as we're seeing with this regional banking crisis playing out right now, Maybe they're not even safe. Um, it is really weird times uh, in the the market for money um, because the Federal Reserve has completely destroyed the dollar and any confidence we can have in it moving forward.
2: Yeah, so so from my perspective, yeah, you're kind of asking two 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 guys that uh, probably haven't had big bank significant bank accounts for years. Um you, yeah. know, you know after two thousand and eight nine, I mean, I, I immediately I haven't touched a too big to fail personally, you know, since you know, and and, and I've had whatever money I, I need in the bank effectively is just what I you know I'll put money in there to pay bills, you know, as I need to do that, um, or what I need for other things. But yeah, I, I've just been you know I try to stick stay, stay away from the banking system. For, for over a decade. So, you know, I'm not the best guy to ask about like how to navigate the banking system because I try to stay away from it. But if, if I don't, if I'm not going to talk about like, you know, Bitcoin or even some precious metals, um, what I would suggest then, what I would do, like if someone said to me, you know, gun to your head, you can't buy Bitcoin, you can't buy any precious metals. Um, you know, those are not your options. So what are you, you going to do? You got a bunch of money in the banks. Um, What I would probably do is, I would look around and I would say, okay, how do I make my life more um, resilient? you know, like, what is it going to take? You know, do, do I, do I start to grow a garden? Do I add this to my landscape? Do I get chickens like we did? You know, you know, what, you know, do, do I stock up on stuff? Yeah. Put your
0: money in real stuff that'll keep you alive. That's usually what I tell people. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. exactly.
2: So, so for example, let me give you one example. And I haven't done this because for a variety of reasons, although it's always in the back of my mind. Okay. So clearly there's going to be some serious tensions between the U S and China, you know, and if you think it's, you know, bad now, it's, you have you haven't seen anything. And probably at some point, and I don't know what that point will be. It could be in 2027. I have no idea. But at some point, you know, the the products that are made in China are just going to somehow not find their way here. anymore. You know, and that's a lot of stuff. <laughs> so, you know, you know, so so what sort of you know, what sort of things you know do you need? You know, what, what sort of things will be important to your resilience? You know, over the coming years, uh, outside, there's there's of course food is an is an important one. Energy is another one. You know, um, sh- you know, sh- having your shelter, you're sort of secured. I mean, do do you need do you need certain batteries? Do you need you know things like that? So if you're if you're not if you're not wanting to you know, like put your money into alternative, let's say financial assets, I would definitely be investing in. Having things that you know you're going to use anyway, right? Like, don't stockpile stuff that you're not going to use. But if you know that you're going to use this, this, and that over the next three years, why not just have have it now? You know, if you've got the money to burn in the bank and you're scared of that, you know the other the other thing that you know this is what my wife and I have been we've been totally dedicating 2023 so far to this, and it's been going really well. It's been busy, but um, you know, skills, right? Learning skills that you don't have that you think would be helpful? Um, and so I would, I, would, I would encourage everyone out there to, to, to think about that. Like, where, where do you feel like you're lacking? So for me, personally, there've been a few areas. One of them is just my inability really to DIY and make things in the physical world um, at all. You know, I grew up in New York city where like, nobody knows how to do anything. You just call the freaking uh, what was superintendent right, to like come fix everything. So for me, I, I felt very, I felt very vulnerable in that regard. So, you know, I'm, I'm taking a woodworking class, for example, and like carpentry trying to learn how to do that stuff. And, uh, it's a massive learning curve. Like it's, it reminds me of Bitcoin too. <laughs> like it's just, you're, you're just like drinking from a fire. Hose.
0: No, but, but it's necessary stuff. Yeah. Yeah, because exactly. even Take like the before these crises, no one, uh, people in the U.S. were just completely losing on a generational level right. the ability to produce any of their own stuff. Like the knowledge base is going away, and that has to come back for the U.S. to have any sort of self sufficiency going forward. Right. Yeah.
2: So we like our kids were also we were, were very focused on that kind of stuff. Like, like my kid, my our oldest son is doing woodworking classes too. So it's up to us, you know. Like, you know, don't just be this. Again, I think. For a while, I, I, I even I did this too. I just buy Bitcoin. I sit around, and be like, okay, well, when's the world going to kind of blow up, right? But, but, but really, <laughs> you know, every single moment, you know, every don't waste your time. I guess is my point. Like, there, there is there. Every single one of us has a gap, right? Like, and we probably know what it is. And you're just like, I wish I was better at this, right? Or I wish I kind of well, just just go get better at it, right? Go learn it.
0: Yeah, you don't want to be caught totally unprepared with what's coming because I mean. I think it's pretty clear that, you know, if this gets ultra super mega crazy and people are just left penniless, you know, the Fed's going to write and be like, oh, well, you know, here's your uh, subsidy or whatever. Or or here's some money, you know, from the government to keep you alive. But it's only uh, in CBDC form and it's programmable money. So you can only use it on the things we say you can use it on. And bam, it's over.
2: Exactly. And like even even making, you know, local connections. We started buying... Um, goat cheese, raw goat cheese from a neighbor, you know, I could walk to you know, in the last two months. It's been great. It's been one, it's the best, the best cheese I've ever had in my life. Like little things like that, just, 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 you know,
1: there there are things everybody can do in that regard. Yeah, no, and I, that's, that's something that's been, there's been a big movement within Bitcoin, like with this in mind, which is the, the concept of going out and shaking your rancher's hand. Maybe you can't ranch, maybe you can't farm. But what you can do is get in your car and drive to your local ranch, or your local farm, shake that farmer's hand and figure out how you can support them. So if you're, if you're not going to be able, you don't think you're going to be able to be self-sufficient in building a farm or a ranch to supply your own food, there are people around you that are and they need to be supported. Just building community and connections locally is extremely important in times
2: like totally. these. Yep, totally agree
0: all right well sounds like we're all pretty much on the same page there and uh, obviously we'll uh, be seeing how this situation play, plays out over the next uh, few weeks and months uh, these issues obviously are not going to go away uh so with that being said uh so people that are interested listening to this podcast how can they follow you guys whether on social media or elsewhere um
1: yeah if you want to follow me i usually hang out on twitter uh at marty bent um and I have a website, tftc.io. You can find my newsletter there where I write about Bitcoin and freedom in the digital age. And then uh, the podcast as well, TFTC and Rabbit Hole Recap.
2: Yeah, from my end, I'm mostly um, publicly facing on Twitter at Liberty Blitz, B-L-I-T-Z, Liberty Blitz. Um yeah, I have my website, Liberty Blitzkrieg, though, if, if I don't really write on it anymore, but there's a ton of stuff there. I mean, if you want to just search any any word you think is interesting, I mean, you you're gonna find a lot of articles I wrote almost daily for nearly a decade. So um, I'm sure I'll write again at some point in my life, but uh, just not, not at the moment. Um, so yeah, I'm pretty much public facing on Twitter, and that's effectively it.
0: Okay, well, super. Well, thanks so much, guys, for coming back on to... Uh... <laughs> talk about even more financial craziness uh i'm sure i'll have you guys back probably sooner rather than later depending on how um all of this plays out uh thanks so much to everyone for listening especially people who support this podcast a big thanks to you all for keeping this going and yeah we'll catch you on the next episode thanks so much
1: thank you whitney